If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In his final diary entry, in April 1865, John Wilkes Booth wrote these words. After being hunted like a dog through swamps, woods, and last night being chased by gunboats till I was forced to return, wet, cold and starving, with every man's hand against me, I am here in despair. And why? For doing what Brutus was honoured for. When searching for a historical parallel for his own murderous actions, Abraham Lincoln's assassin chose to look back almost 2,000 years to the killer of Julius Caesar. Welcome to the final part of Caesar, Death of a Dictator. In this episode, we'll be bringing our story to a conclusion and considering why this assassination has echoed down the centuries. One clear parallel between John Wilkes Booth and Marcus Junius Brutus is that neither would enjoy a long life after their most notorious deed. Lincoln's assassin was hunted down and killed by Union soldiers, while, as we heard in episode 5, Brutus died by his own hand, after having been defeated in battle by the forces of Mark Antony and Octavian. But the dust hadn't settled yet. Following the victory over Brutus and Cassius, Antony and Octavian formed another triumvirate, with the general Lepidus, a relatively minor player in this alliance. Antony and Octavian agreed to divide up their spheres of influence. And here, we need to reintroduce one of the key characters from earlier in the series. During the Civil War, Egypt's queen, Cleopatra, had been courted by both sides. But she chose to bide her time, waiting to see who would triumph. Yet once the assassins had been defeated, her position was transformed and the scene was set for one of history's most legendary romances, and her second great affair with a leading Roman statesman. Here's Jane Draycott of the University of Glasgow describing what's often said to be Mark Antony's first meeting with Cleopatra. In the sources, we have this very dramatic story of an encounter between them in um, Tarsus when Mark Antony, in his role as the member of the Second Triumvirate who has charge of the eastern part of the empire. So after the civil war is settled, he goes over to the east to try and sort things out, tidy things up. And he summons Cleopatra to come and see him to explain herself. Why didn't you come and help us during this civil war that's just happened? And she thinks for a while about whether she should go and see him and how she should go and see him. And when she does eventually turn up, she does so in this very impressive boat, flotilla really, with music and dancing and perfume and purple sails and golden oars and 
putting on display the full power and wealth of Egypt and, and making a dramatic spectacle of her arrival. This is how it's presented to us in the sources as Antony meets Cleopatra, West meets East, two civilizations collide in, in the form of these two people. In reality, they have probably met each other on numerous previous occasions. When Cleopatra was a teenager, Antony was doing military activity in Egypt. When Cleopatra was Caesar's mistress, Antony was Caesar's friend. So they would obviously have been acquainted with each other for many years. And Plutarch does at one point tell us that he'd, he'd been he'd been sort of interested in her and after her for a long time, but he never had the opportunity. We don't really know what their first actual meeting was, but what we know about their their first meeting in the in the grand love story of Antony and Cleopatra. So that's that's what we can we can perhaps visualise when we think about them. Cleopatra entered into a relationship with Mark Antony just as she'd done with Julius Caesar several years earlier. But while that was a strongly political alliance, might Antony and Cleopatra have been a genuine love story? I think, yes. Both Caesar and Antony had many different relationships with both women and men throughout their lives, including client kings and queens. So in one respect, Cleopatra was not a unique occurrence for either of them. But I think it's fair to say that potentially her relationship with Antony was more meaningful. Whether that's simply because her relationship with Caesar only lasted a few years before his death and hers with Antony lasted for 10 years or so until his and and her death. So... We, we can think of it that way, that she she and Caesar didn't have a chance to have a dramatic love affair. Also, as part of the posthumous cleanup of, of his, his life and his reputation, his relationship with Cleopatra is minimised by his successors precisely because Antony's relationship with Cleopatra is so personally damaging to him. Whether Cleopatra and Caesar had a, a sort of significant romantic loving relationship is, is almost sort of dismissed and it's, it's seen sort of as, as, as much less significant. And Antony's relationship with Cleopatra is, is emphasised as one of the main contributing reasons to his personal downfall. So as with many historical and contemporary individuals who find themselves suddenly unpopular when they had previously been popular, it's the woman that's blamed for it. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. While Antony was forming a powerful alliance with Cleopatra, cracks were growing in his relationship with Octavian, which had long been a fraught one. Octavian is Caesar's heir. He, he is posthumously adopted by Caesar. Caesar's his great uncle. So he becomes adopted by Caesar, becomes Caesar's son. He takes the name. He takes the money. He takes the veterans and, and the, the forces that Caesar has. And this is a bone of contention between Antony and Octavian from the very beginning because Antony is older. He is more politically and militarily experienced. He expects to be Caesar's heir, if, if not legally at least politically and militarily, like flying the flag for the Caesarian faction. So when this teenager who has never done anything in his life and didn't really have seemingly a close relationship with Caesar during during his lifetime sweeps in and, and cleans up in, in the will and expects to be taken seriously as a, a general, as a politician, Understandably, Antony is quite uh, perplexed by this, put out by this. And so they have a personal rivalry from 44 onwards over who is the, the true heir to Caesar, who should be the one that's directing their efforts. Antony is very militarily experienced, a very good general. And Octavian likes to hide in his tent and, and claim that he's ill during military activity. So he doesn't really cover himself in glory for a long time. He is, however, very intelligent and he is able to wage a very successful propaganda war against Antony because Antony spends a lot of the the next decade in the East trying to sort out everything there. He spends a lot of time with Cleopatra and that allows Octavian to present Antony as basically having gone native with all of the sort of unpleasant racist and xenophobic connotations of that. Another crucial detail in all this is that Antony had actually married Octavian's sister, Octavia, as a way to strengthen their alliance. But of course, this only made Antony's romance with Cleopatra even more incendiary. What that does is it makes the political personal because anything that Antony does personally in his marriage to Octavia, so leaving her in Italy so that he can go to Egypt to spend time with Cleopatra, for example, 
that's not only a personal slight against Octavia, it's also a political slight against Octavian, because by disrespecting his wife and his marriage, he's also disrespecting his alliance with Octavian and Rome itself, Roman ways, Roman morals and values. So the pair of them have this rivalry and this enmity. Cleopatra is is almost incidental in this, really. She is uh, used by Octavian to justify his moves against Antony. And rather than having yet another civil war, what Octavian argues he's doing is he's going to war with Egypt. He's going to war with Cleopatra, who is anathema to the Romans for, for so many reasons. And yet another one now is that she's taken Antony, this Roman hero, and she's turned him into this sort of snivelling, drunken, drug-addled eunuch, basically. And that's what she will do to everybody else as well. She wants to move the Roman Empire to Egypt. She wants to be the boss of Rome. And, and that is absolutely abhorrent to, to Octavian and, well, everybody else. In 32 BC, war broke out yet again this time between the forces of Octavian and those of Antony and Cleopatra. And in this conflict, Caesar's young heir held an important advantage. I think a lot of it comes down to propaganda. Uh, Octavian was better situated than them logistically. He, He had the western part of the empire. He was based in Rome primarily. So he was able to present himself as the defender of Roman traditions. Antony in the east, both spending time in Egypt, but also trying to prepare for his military campaign against Parthia to follow in Caesar's footsteps and and, uh, finally defeat Parthia. He was not able to, in real time, defend himself against the sort of drip, drip, drip of negative stories about him because he was a couple of weeks away. So because Octavian was in Rome and Antony wasn't in Rome, Octavian had the advantage there. Things came to a head in 31 BC in a naval clash off the coast of Greece. It's often described as the decisive moment in the power struggle between Antony and Cleopatra and Octavian. But Jane Draycott believes the truth is a little more complex. There isn't really a final defeat. It's more like a war of attrition. So they have the Battle of Actium in 31. And this is presented as the absolute crowning achievement of Octavian's military and political career. Although in reality, it was a fairly unimpressive battle that was over quite quickly and not particularly conclusively either, although later he would claim that it absolutely was a conclusive defeat. Antony and Cleopatra were defeated, their forces were shattered. So he uses that as part of his personal mythology. And again, it's not him that's doing it. He he is not particularly militarily successful. It's his best friend, right-hand man, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa, who is the admiral of the Parthian campaign, so who should have the victory, but but he does it in Octavian's name. So we have we have the Battle of Actium, which is not great success for Octavian, but it's also not really a, a disastrous defeat for Antony and Cleopatra. Again, it's about the propaganda that's, that's made of it. So Cleopatra leaves the battle. Antony follows her because he, he wants to know where are you going, what's going on. That is presented as... They ran, they they fled, they abandoned their forces. But it's not for another year until Octavian goes to Egypt to 
finish things off. And and during that that time, that year, there is a lot of diplomatic activity going back and forth between Cleopatra and Octavian, Antony and Octavian. And this is a really interesting time because according to our sources, Antony, in the wake of the Battle of Actium, he tries to, to gather up more troops from various places, but they are understandably not so keen to, to align themselves with him. And he has something akin to a nervous breakdown and he goes off into seclusion and spends a lot of time sort of feeling very sorry for himself and wondering how on earth has it come to this. While he's doing that, Cleopatra has clearly decided that their partnership has worn out its welcome. It it no longer serves her. So for all that they do seem to have uh, a lot of love and a lot of affection for each other, and a lot of passion as well, apparently, when it comes down to it, what Cleopatra values more is her kingdom, her dynasty, and her children. She is prepared to sacrifice Antony in order to ensure the survival of those things. So she is engaging with Octavian separately to Antony. She is saying to him, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? I will give you Antony, or I will abdicate and retire to India, and my children can rule instead of me. I can be loyal to you now instead of Antony. And so she gives them a lot of options about how to try and ensure the survival of of Egypt as an independent kingdom and the Ptolemaic dynasty as an independent dynasty. But Octavian is is not really taken with any of those things because what he's looking at are the the flashing pound signs when it comes to what Egypt as as a site of natural resources can provide for him. All of the grain, all of the gold, all of the marble... And he doesn't need Cleopatra for that. And he doesn't need Antony either. So what we see over the, this, this year between 31 to 30 is just this gradual whittling away of any realistic hope that uh, Antony and Cleopatra could win. They lose the confidence of their forces. So when Octavian does finally arrive in Egypt, their forces go over to him. And that's because those forces are predominantly Roman. So it makes sense for them to to, uh, not uh, sacrifice themselves for the sake of Egypt. The Egyptian people are still very loyal to Cleopatra. After Cleopatra's death, they, they pay Octavian money to ensure that he doesn't melt down all of her statues, for example. So, so as far as the Egyptians are concerned, they, they are loyal to Cleopatra. They are loyal to their royal family. So it really is just this rather sort of sad, (laughs) gradual winding down of this once very uh, significant political partnership until there's, there's nothing left really except the individual relationship. And that individual relationship didn't have long to run. First, Antony was persuaded to take his own life. Cleopatra uses Antony's feelings to manipulate him. She sends a message to him to tell him that she has committed suicide in the hope that he will commit suicide and and that removes him from the situation so she can negotiate with Octavian and it works. He he gets the message. He he attempts to take his own life. He makes a bit of a hash of it so he doesn't die immediately. He has time to receive another message, possibly Cleopatra had second thoughts about this, um, that she's not actually dead. So so he goes to her and dies 
in her arms. And her response to this, she's she's heartbroken. So although politically and strategically she wanted him out of the way, he's still been her her lover, her husband for a decade. He's still the father of three of her children, and he's still bleeding all over her as he dies. And the fact that she is so emotional about it, when there's no one there to see, apart from um, uh, enslaved people and and as far as uh, ancient uh, Greeks and Romans are concerned, they're basically furniture anyway. So she's not performing for Octavian or anyone else. She's genuinely emotionally distraught at what has happened. And then she does attempt to uh, kill herself. She attempts to stab herself in the chest, but she's she's stopped by the Romans taken into custody. She then attempts to starve herself to death. And it's only by threatening her children that Octavian gets her to agree to eat again. He he plays along with her for a while, and he, he does give the impression that he might be willing to come to some kind of accommodation, but it's basically just keeping her sweet until he can take her back to Rome and, as a captive. And when she realises this, she's like, no, that, that's not happening. And that's when she decides to take her own life and deny him that opportunity. And how did Cleopatra kill herself? Is there any credence to the legend of her allowing a poisonous snake to bite her? The thing is, we don't actually know what happened. It's all very mysterious. We know that she died... And two of her handmaidens died with her. So this this immediately makes the asp story a little bit suspect because trying to get a snake to bite three people in, in quick succession is both difficult to get a snake to do that, to cooperate with you, but also they just wouldn't have enough venom to, to, to kill three people that way. So there are different accounts from the very beginning. Uh, in, in antiquity... Nobody was really sure. There were there were competing accounts. There there was the snake story, but there was also poisoned ointment, poisoned hairpin. Cleopatra was very experienced with with botany and poisons and and toxicology and pharmacy. So there are accounts of her doing experiments and and trying to find out which poisons uh, are best for for which situation. So. Yes, it seems like poison was used, but what poison, how, we, we don't know. They didn't know then, and, and, and we still don't know now. But it makes, uh, it makes a, a, a very uh, exciting story. It's possible that there was just some kind of confusion. When the effigy of her body was exhibited, it was exhibited with snakes, it seems, and whether they were as the symbol of Egyptian royalty, the uraeus in the crown, or jewellery, snaky bracelets, or something like that. That seems to have been an image that stuck in people's minds, and so that was put together with the mysterious locked room death and the, the poisoning that seemed to have caused that. With Antony and Cleopatra dead, Caesar's heir, Octavian, emerged triumphant. Just as Caesar had sought to do 15 years earlier, Octavian established himself as the sole ruler of the Roman world. And while Caesar's period of dominance was relatively brief, Octavian, who was also known as Augustus, remained in power until his death in 14 AD. He was Rome's first emperor, and he set the stage for many centuries of imperial rule. In fact, it wasn't until 1453 and the fall of Constantinople 
that this line of emperors was finally extinguished, almost 1,500 years after Caesar had been killed. So now we've come to the end of our story, and I thought it would be a good time to reflect on the significance of Caesar's assassination. How important a moment was this in Roman, and indeed world history? Here's Professor Philip Freeman of Pepperdine University. I think the assassination of Julius Caesar was definitely a a pivotal moment in Roman history for many reasons, but for one, it cleared the way for Octavian to come in fresh as a young man and to assume this new imperial role in a way that that Caesar absolutely laid the groundwork for this, but he had uh, too much baggage, if you will, uh, for the people to rally around him. Here, uh, Octavian, the, the great nephew of Julius Caesar, comes in. You see a new age coming into Rome. And so, I think uh, the death of Julius Caesar was pivotal. I think if he had stayed in power, there would have been more uprisings, more discontent among, certainly among the aristocracy. The assassination of Julius Caesar, I think, had the opposite effect uh, from what many of the conspirators wanted. They wanted to restore the Republic, but I think the death of Julius Caesar was the nail in the coffin of the Republic. It was the beginning of the Roman Empire, which would last for many, many centuries after that. And here's the view of Professor Catherine Steele of Glasgow University. I think it's one of those moments which is hugely significant because it was a moment of destabilising. Sort of in a in a medium term level, I think it was hugely significant because what was the alternative? Well, the alternative, I guess, was either well, Caesar's departure for Parthia and either victory or defeat. Victory, a return to Rome, and the consolidation of monarchy. That seems to be unproblematic. And you might say, well, okay, we get there in the same way, but that would have circumvented 15 years of appalling, destructive global conflict. Well, Mediterranean-wide conflict from a Roman perspective. Or he would be defeated. Catastrophic defeat for Caesar in the course of the Parthian campaign, we probably get something more close to what we have in terms of the splitting of the res publica into ambitious men who see an opportunity, probably a different set of men, depending on when the news falls, how it falls, um, and without the complication of Caesar's assassination and the opportunity that gives to Octavian in particular, the young Caesar, we should probably call him, to construct a narrative about vengeance. In the longer term, though, you might say, well, it it probably didn't make that much of a difference. Rome was already on the path to monarchy. And what it did was it changed, or it it fixed the individuals at a particular point, but it didn't necessarily change that trajectory to monarchy. And I guess actually more interesting, I think, than, than that question is the question of why did the Roman Empire stick together? Because it does seem to me to be, you know, a slightly unexpected outcome of what happened was that it still all clings together as a single entity, as opposed to splitting up into different power blocks. And the last word on this matter goes to Professor Barry Strauss of Cornell University. The death of Caesar is such an important event in world history for a number of reasons. I think the most important reason is that it brings on another era of civil wars. What would have happened if Caesar had lived? Of course, we don't know. What would have happened if Caesar had lived? He might have triumphed in the East. He might have been successful. He might have come back to Rome, closer to Cleopatra than ever. And the ultimate outcome might have been the same as what we got, which is to say the Roman Republic becomes the Roman monarchy, what we call the Roman Empire. But there might have been a different outcome. Caesar was not a healthy man. We know that Caesar suffered either from epilepsy or from a series of 
mini strokes. It's very difficult to diagnose this from our distance. One of the things that Cicero said, and he said many different things, was why they bother assassinating him? He was going to die soon anyhow. He might well have died in the East, and we don't know what would have happened then. The Roman Republic was fated to change. It had to change for a variety of reasons, but it wasn't fated to become a monarchy. And it might have remained as an oligarchy, a reformed oligarchy, an oligarchy that brought in provincial notables as Pompey and Caesar had begun to do. But an empire didn't have to be governed by one man. It could have been governed by committees, as many empires had done. So if Caesar had not been assassinated, that was a possible outcome as well, that it might have save the Roman Republic in a way that another generation of civil wars couldn't have. The other generation of civil wars just swept everything uh, out of the way. So that's another reason that it mattered. Another reason that the assassination of Julius Caesar is so important is, is not political or pragmatic so much as symbolic. It's one of the greatest symbols of assassination in history. And the assassins claimed that they were killing a tyrant. They weren't just killing somebody who was trying to reform the Roman political system. They were killing a tyrant. And in my opinion, they had some justification to say that. Whatever Caesar's original motivations, and there's no reason to think that he grew up wanting to become the tyrant of Rome, he really was flirting with it. He was really flirting with dictatorship. And what the assassin said is not so fast. We're not going to allow this to happen. We really do care about the Republic. It's a tragedy what happened. Caesar deserved a better fate. And it's a tragedy that the assassins did not have the ruthlessness and the political cunning to make the assassination stick and to save the Republic. But if they could have saved the Republic, and then if they had been willing to reform the Republic, and that's a very big if, that would have been a good thing for the world if the world had been saved, another generation of civil war and everything that came afterwards. So it's no surprise that John Wilkes Booth drew inspiration from Brutus when committing his own act of violence almost two millennia later. The murder of Caesar changed the world, even if not in the manner that his killers had intended. But like Caesar, they too have gone down in history. And which assassin hasn't wanted to do that? Thanks to my guests for this episode, Dr. Jane Draycott of Glasgow University, Professor Catherine Steele, also of Glasgow University, Professor Philip Freeman of Pepperdine University, and Professor Barry Strauss of Cornell University. This series was written and presented by me, Rob Attar, with additional checks by Rob Blackmore and our podcast editor, Ellie Cawthorn. The producer was Jack Bateman. <laughs> <laughs>